0: Two weeks ago, we were in uh, chapters 4 and 5, and we looked at Solomon now coming into his own, his his ministry, his reign, beginning after his father David had died. And remember, David uh, wanted to build a temple. God told him he couldn't because he had blood on his hands. And David's heart was, well, if I can't build a temple myself, then I'm going to uh, allow, I'm going to do everything I can to help my son do it. Because the Lord says, David, you can't do it, but your son will. And David's attitude, you know, and think about if you were in this place. You know, have you ever, has God ever told you no on something, but he wanted you to help somebody else do what you really wanted to do? Do you know how hard that can be? Does anybody experience that? You know, God allows somebody else to do what you really wanted to do. And he says, I don't want you to do it. And then you question, well, why? You know, and God did give him an answer. And I think David was satisfied with that answer. But he wasn't satisfied with just sitting in the sidelines and sulking and, you know, and and kind of hindering the work. No, David was like, you know what, I can't do it, but I'm going to do everything else. I'm going to provide all the gold, silver, I'm going to take all of it, and I'm going to compound it, I'm going to give all of my stuff, above and beyond what I've pillaged from other lands and, uh, and everything else, I'm going to give above and beyond my own gold and silver, and I'm going to give you the blueprint, Solomon, and I'm going to give you all the, the people that you need to get the work done, because this work was monumental, and it was hugely expensive. The gold that was required for this was—it was incredible. It it really, it really is. It, it would make anybody's jaw drop. We 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 looked at some of those numbers and it was just like out of the park. Because <laughs> you're talking about gold lining the walls with gold, like we did, you know, two years ago. We lined all this with gold, but it didn't work out. You know, just kidding. I mean, we we. <laughs> I mean, an ounce of gold, eighteen hundred dollars. You know, I mean, so. Anyway, so David's heart was to do it. He couldn't do it, but he helped his son, and so Solomon begins his reign, and and so he begins, and we find that in uh, verse, uh, or excuse me, chapter four, you know he he basically doubles the footprint of the uh, mosaic model of the tabernacle. He basically doubles the size. He doubles the amount of, uh, and even uh, quadruples and, and and many times over, ten times over, some of the elements. Some of the furnishings in the, in the temple, instead of one laver, they were now 10. Instead of one lampstand, now there were 10. Everything was just maxed out. And I love that too, extravagant worship. And so finally, they, in chapter 5, they bring in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, remember, was there in... David's Mount Zion, or Zion, which is just to the south of the Temple Mount that we know today, where the Dome of the Rock is. If you're looking at the 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 Dome of the Rock up here, down here is Zion, and this is where David's palace would be, and that's also where David erected another tabernacle just for the Ark of the Covenant. So, and the other articles were um, in another place. I believe it was in Gibeon. And, uh, and so just the Ark of the Covenant was there. And so finally, they bring all of these elements together, and they bring them into the house of God. And notice what it says there in verse, um, let's see, in verse 13 of chapter 5. It says, Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers, they were, they were worshiping the Lord, they brought the Ark in, and um, the singing and everything, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and instruments of music, and they praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Quoting from Psalm 136, verse 1, a psalm of David. And they said, for he is good, speaking of the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever, that, this, that the house, the house of the Lord, Was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. What an amazing thing, isn't it? What an amazing thing. They're trying to do the right thing, trying to serve the Lord, and they can't even get into the place because the glory, uh, they, they call it, the rabbis uh, coined a term. You won't find it in the Bible, but the term is Shekinah. It was a, a rabbi's word, and it just meant a, the, a theophanic cloud, a, a God cloud, a, the very presence of God. And so he, they can't even minister because it's so So huge and you can't see and it's just overwhelming you. And I don't know about you, but that'd be pretty cool. You know? It's like we could start our service here, and if God filled this place with a cloud and it wasn't a fire, you know, if it was really Him, believe me, I'm stepping off to the side. Lord, you take over, (laughs) and hopefully He's taking over now, but I'm really gonna sit and I'm actually probably hit the ground with my face, right? And so what a glorious thing. And again, this time in Israel's history, I've said it before, but I have to say it again, is like the golden moment for Israel. It's the, the 40 years that Solomon was reigning. Do you understand that Israel didn't have any problems with their enemies? It was a time of peace, 40 years. I don't know if Israel has ever had a time of peace like that moment ever, even up to this very moment in time, 40 years of peace and tranquility and prosperity, huge prosperity, incredible. And in fact, I believe that, well, I know this to be true, that the next time that they're going to experience that kind of peace is going to be in the millennium. We've been talking about that a lot lately, especially on Sunday morning. But the millennial reign of Christ where he physically comes back to the earth and David, as a, like a co-regent, will rule and, and, and have some part in the new Jerusalem in this millennial reign of Christ. And Christ himself will be there. And the Bible says that when that temple, when Jesus builds a new temple, that that temple will be filled with the same Shekinah glory And the very Son of God will be present, and it will be amazing. It'll be glorious. Are you looking forward to that time, saints? No more Washington, D.C. See ya. We're going to be in Jerusalem, and the cloud is going to fill the house. And all of us are going to be there in bodies that are different now, that won't wear out. You won't need a knee replacement, you won't need a hip replacement. All of your veins will be free of hardening. It'll be wonderful. So chapter 6, it says, Then Solomon, after, they, after this happened, this Shekinah glory filled the temple. And then Solomon spoke, and he said, The Lord said that he would dwell in the dark cloud. Now, this is interesting because to say that the Lord dwells in the dark cloud seems to be a strange thing to say, doesn't it? Because isn't he all about light? Isn't he all about brightness and and his glory is just huge? And all I think of is a bright light that nobody can approach. That's the way I think of it. But when you see stuff like this, it makes you scratch your head, doesn't it? That he would dwell in a dark cloud. But the thing is, in Psalm 18 David said this in verse 6, he says, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and I cried out to my God, He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. And then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken, because he was angry. And smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it, and he bowed the heavens also, and came down with darkness under his feet. That's kind of interesting. And he rode upon a cherub and flew, and he flew upon the wings of the wind. And notice verse 11, he made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed and hailstones and coals of fire. Boy, that just... Sends a fear, doesn't it, down your spine? And in a good way. For us, we don't have to face God in his wrath, but even in his holiness now, just to see him in in, in that kind of way is just really awe-inspiring. And because God is who he is, everything else around him is pale in comparison. God is light, and there is no light or source greater than he is. Any light that that, uh, there is comes from him. And therefore, it must naturally be less in intensity and perfection. So therefore, darkness is moved by the presence of his light. Does that make sense? Even the light that he creates must be submitted to him because his light is so much greater. So much greater that maybe it makes everything else look dark that he created. Does that make sense? And so he dwells. And God has to veil his holiness and his perfection. Otherwise, nothing in his path would survive. He must veil it. And I believe that this is the main reason we're going to need to have a resurrection body at the rapture because it will need to be different quality. It'll need to be a different quality for us to even be in the presence of God. Because if we were to stand before God in this body, in this corrupt mortal body that we have currently, we would die instantly. Do you understand that? That's pretty awe-inspiring. To me, that provokes me to worship because I so often try to bring, down, bring God down to, to my thoughts and bring him down to the, the plane that I'm at. And I have to remember <laughs> that there is no possible way that God is on the same level as I am. And when I attempt to bring him down, I am missing everything. And there's no, it's no wonder then that I don't worship him. Because if I see him like, he's, like, he's, he's kind of like me, you know, he's my brother, he's my friend. You know? I mean, it's all good to think that way, but you have to remember that he's also God Almighty who created all things. And he's the one who is brighter and more intensely love and perfect than anything we can possibly imagine. And what does it tell us in Exodus 33? Let me read this to you. It's in, beginning in verse 13. This is when God was speaking to Moses before he would move Israel from the area of Mount Sinai and, and continue moving them toward the Promised Land. But it says in verse 13 of Exodus 33, Now, therefore, I pray, Moses said, If I have found grace in your, sh- your sight, show me your way, that I may know you and that I might find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said... And God said to him, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Boy, that's comforting. If God is with you and he's going to give you rest, that's a good day, isn't it? How many of you feel like the presence of God isn't always with you and you're really tired? That's not a good day. But when God is with you and you have rest, what a joy that is, right? And then he he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, Moses said to God, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name, Moses. And he said, please, Moses said to God, please show me your glory. Can you... Can you just the longing in Moses' heart, just to see God in this veiled sense, and and, and going, you know, I just want to, I want you to blast me, Lord. I want to, I want to see you and for who you really are. I want you to blow me away. And then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll proclaim the name of Jehovah, is literally what he said before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, I'll be compassion on whom I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But here it is, verse twenty. But he said, You cannot see my face, Moses, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock and so it shall be that while my glory passes by that I'll put, out, put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by and then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. That is something amazing, isn't it? No one else, I don't know of anybody who's had that privilege to even see the hinder parts of God, to see the trail but to see the front of him, Moses would have died. He would have died, and so would we. That's why God had to veil himself. That's why even Jesus, when he came to earth, the flesh that was uh, tabern- that he was tabernacled in, veiled, if you would, for a season while he was here on the earth, the magnificence of who he really was. It had to be that way. So God the Father is spirit. And he has to veil himself because no one can look on him and live. And the disciples were able to look on Jesus because Jesus, again, his, veil, his glory was veiled temporarily while on earth. And I love what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, Paul said to Timothy, he says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep his commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Christ uh, appearing which he shall he will manifest in his own time and he who is the blessed and only potentate notice that only Christ is the potentate there's no the pope in rome is not the potentate Christ alone is the potentate, the ruler, the mighty great authority of God, the king of kings and lord of lords. Notice verse 16, who alone has immortality. And here it is again, dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man can, has seen or can see. That is pretty amazing, isn't it? Nobody has seen God and lived face to face. They've never seen him. See, that's the God we serve. That's the one I bow my knee to. That's the one that, when I think of him in that way, it it brings a reverence, doesn't it? It should. It ought to bring a reverence, a holy reverence. Even as a believer, you know, when you look over in the prophets and you look at Daniel and you look at Revelation and you see these men even coming into the presence of an angel, the natural response of even seeing an angel of god is to hit the bricks to hit your face right on the ground and like you're dead so much so they have to pull you up and say hey stand up and john even tried to worship an angel and the angel says hey don't worship me worship god i'm a fellow i'm a fellow just like you And that was just an angel of God. Think of what it's going to be like, folks, to stand in the presence of Almighty God, to stand in the presence of Christ. It'll be involuntary, I think. We will just naturally fall. (laughs) And I'm okay with that, because there's only one king I want to bow before who deserves all of my worship. He deserves all that I am. Everything that I've got, he deserves it. And I tell you, I can't wait for that day. We're going to be weeping in joy. I wonder how many years it would be before we can finally stand up with our eyes red, full of joy, with tears, and our hearts just raptured. Can you imagine the the lightness and the joy and the peace and the love all just enveloped into one, just totally just rocking your boat? Love it. And in verse 2, he says, I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Now, when Solomon said this, he was addressing God, probably facing the temple or looking up to heaven as he spoke these words. But notice now, in verses 3 through 11, Solomon's going to give a speech and he's going to turn around and he's going to address the people who are behind him. So then the king turned around and he blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, blessed be, the Lord God of Israel, who has fulfilled with his hands that he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt. I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people in Israel. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. And so here, what Solomon is doing is he's rehearsing what God had said to David in Second Samuel chapter 7, verses. 6 and 7 specifically, when God gave the covenant, his covenant to David, and then he says, "I I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there, and I've chosen David, and this, folks, is fulfilled prophecy fulfilled prophecy because God had spoken this in time past that he would choose a place to place his name there and for Israel to offer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices. So around 1406 BC the Lord said this to the children of Israel and it's recorded for us in Deuteronomy chapter 12 what God had said. And this was before Israel came into the land. They were still on the Uh, eastern side of the Jordan River. They hadn't crossed over into the promised land yet. And, um, And before all of this, God had said this in Deuteronomy 12. Let me read it to you. He says, these are the statutes and the judgments. Again, 1406, God was speaking this to them right before they crossed over. So that's 400 years before... Solomon was even born. These are the statutes, the judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, and you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship. The Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses. Notice, this is 400 years before what we're reading now. He's saying, I'm going to choose a place where you're going to worship. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. And there you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice in all to which... You have put your hand to, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today. In other words, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. Do you, do you see that? Because a few hundred years before this even, God had given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob... The same promise, I'm going to bring you into the land. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan for your possession. And so now here they are coming out of Egypt, having spent 430 years there, and now they're getting ready to cross over, and God is telling them all of this. He says, verse 10, but when you cross over the Jordan, and just a couple days from now, when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit and gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there, will be, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And that place would ultimately be in Jerusalem. You remember when David had um, sinned against the Lord by counting the people, and God had judged uh, the nation as a result of David's error, and David was there, and the angel was, was destroying, and, and many people were dying. And the Lord, through the prophet Gad, told David to build an altar. And so David very quickly went to Aruna the Jebusite, who owned the land on the Temple Mount that you and I know today. And it was, used to be a threshing floor, and he owned it. And so David approaches him and says, hey, listen, I, I, I want to buy this from you. And Aruna just wanted to give it to the king. He's like, "You know, you have take everything, the oxen, the cart, everything." And David says, "No, I can't. I can't do that, Aruna. Cuz how can I worship God with that which cost me nothing?" And so David paid him the full price for it. And it was on that spot, on that spot that many, many years prior to this, that Abraham offered up Isaac. Now it's going to be that same very spot. After David passes, his son would build an altar on that very same spot at the top of Mount Moriah. Today, you and I would call it the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock is sitting on that location right now, but it won't be there forever. Don't worry. Now it was in my heart, now Solomon is, is recalling this, he says, Now it was in the heart of my David, my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a, a temple for my name, you did well And that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your own body, he shall build the temple in my name. And, and I love this because notice that God gave David credit for the thought of it. And you know, there are many things, uh, brothers and sisters, that you're going to have a desire to do that for whatever reason, God may not have that for you. It may be something, a good desire of your heart, but maybe he hasn't really called you to do it. Maybe he's called someone else to do it. For whatever reasons, we don't know and and we can't get bent out of shape about that. God has people prepared and planned to do certain things and we just have to get out of the way and wait. And and trust me, if you wait and he's got a plan for you, 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 he will show, he will reveal his plan for you. And when you're in it, you'll be blessed. It'll be different from somebody else and it's okay. But just be patient and wait and be available and be ready, be willing to do anything in between and just say, I want to help do anything. And a lot of times, in the process of that, God will reveal to you exactly what He's called you to do. So don't just stay stagnant and sit in your house and watch television waiting for God to reveal Himself and what He wants, you to, wants to do with your life. Get out there and start serving Him. And in the process of doing that, you're going to discover He's going to be changing your heart. He, he did it that way with me, and I know He did that way with, with many people. But nevertheless, you shall not build my temple. But your son, who will come from your own body, he shall build the temple for my name. Now, in Second Samuel chapter three, it tells us that David, uh, prior to this, prior to Solomon being born, he had six other uh, other sons. He had Amnon, Chilion, Absalom, Adonijah, Shephatiah, and Ithraim. Ithraim. And, um, and and so now, when David gave, or when God gave David this promise, all those six sons had already been born. And so the, the next son that he would give birth to would be from Bathsheba, and it would be Solomon. And so, verse 10, So the Lord has fulfilled, Solomon says, the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David, and I sit on the throne of David as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And here, and there, excuse me, I have put the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel. And again, this covenant would be the Ten Commandments, and these were two tables of stone. And you can look at these uh, scriptures and, and it kind of chronicles when God made the first tablets and how Moses had broke them. And then God made new ones for him. And, um, and those were ultimately put into the Ark of the Covenant. And think of what a joy and a satisfaction. We're not going to go to all these scriptures. I would encourage you just to write them down or take a picture or, or get it on podcast later. Uh, But think of what joy and satisfaction this must have been for not only Solomon, but for all of Israel. Because again, what a golden moment this was. It was a great moment. And God spoke this over 400 years prior to this. And now God is coming through with his promises. And God cannot renege on his promises. He can't to Israel or to the church. He can't go back on what he has promised. It's impossible for him to do. And why can he, how is it that God can make a promise and that he can keep it? Well, he's got an unfair advantage. He's got um, all all knowledge. And he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's um, omnipotent. He can make anything that he wants to happen. Even if it defies the law of physics or gravity, he made all those things. He made those laws. He put them into motion. He can step in at any moment and and defy them at any time he wants for his own purposes, not for entertainment, understand. And Jesus never did this either. Think about the miracle of the sun standing still when Joshua was going after their enemies. And God had told them to vanquish their enemies. And the, the, the sun was going down. And they needed more time. And God says, well, I'll fix that. And, and do you know that people who have studied this, the scientists and the astro- uh, uh, astrologers, is that right? Uh, astro- astronomers? Astronomers. Astrology is a whole different thing. It's pagan. But the astronomers, and they have, they've discovered that there was something that happened back at that time. They can't deny it. There's something that happened, and God did it. And he stopped the sun, or he stopped the earth. Whatever he did, he defied the thing that he created to allow Israel to vanquish their enemies because it was the will of God. Isn't that exciting? It was the will of God. And if you're running out of time, and it's God's will, he's going to add some more daylight. Or you're not going to need it. But if you need it, he can provide it. That's encouraging to me, that he's the God of the impossible. And don't be discouraged. Because sometimes it's just not God's will, but when it is, you're untouchable. I have, I'm only 54 years old, and I have seen things in my short time on the earth where only God could have done that. In my own life and in others' life, and I'm just in awe of it. Truly in awe of it. So now Solomon has this prayer of dedication. So it begins in verse 12, and it says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long and five cubits wide and three cubits high, and had, set, had it set in the midst of the court, and he stood on it, and he knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. So this diagram that I made on the screen right now, it just shows what the, it would look like at the top. It was literally seven and a half feet uh, wide and, 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 and long. So it was a seven and a half foot cube. And then if you looked at it from the side, it would be uh, four and a half feet tall. And certainly there would be stairs going up to that. And so Solomon gets up there, he kneels down, and he spreads out his hands toward heaven. Where is heaven? It's up. Jesus prayed, and he looked up to heaven. <laughs> it's not down, it's up. And Solomon does the same thing. He lifts up his hands, and he looks toward heaven. Right? Right? And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no god in heaven or on earth like you who keeps your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept notice what you have promised. Your servant David, my father, you have both spoken it with your mouth and you fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. And this is one of the things that is so wonderful about God is that he can make a promise And he has the power to back it up. In Deuteronomy 7, uh, beginning in verse 7, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. He's a covenant-keeping God. He will not renege on his promises. Because he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. He's redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God. Notice the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations and those who love him and keep his commandments. What a glorious thing! God is so faithful. He he can't be anything else, he is faithful. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, verse 16, know, now keep what you promised your servant David my father, saying you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk in my law as you have walked before me. And so we're gonna, we know that because we've already been through First and Second Kings already, we've already seen what happens a few hundred years down the road from this. What happens they're, they're not faithful, and so Zedekiah, Judah's last king, is taken captive. He, his eyes are put out after um, Nebuchadnezzar kills his sons, puts his eyes out, and Israel hasn't had a king since then. Because they failed. But does that mean that God is done with them? No. No. it's postponed. The kingdom right now is postponed, but there's a kingdom coming, folks, and we've been talking about it on Sunday morning, that kingdom in the millennial reign. When Jesus comes back to the earth physically with all of us in our glorified bodies looking so wonderful, we're gonna come back with him to the earth after the rapture. We'll be with him seven years, and then we'll come down and he will establish his Government and it will crush all other governments. Yes, Washington, D.C. Hallelujah. It'll all be gone. Only Christ and His wonderful character, the only God who has the perfect character. Love that. No deals, no scandals and schisms. Almighty God, perfect in holiness and power. The Davidic dynasty would be cut off or postponed until the second coming. And in verse seventeen, it says, "And now, Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David." And, and God made uh, again that covenant in Second Samuel seven. We've already looked at that, but David had a, a very similar prayer that we hear that we hear in, in, in uh, Solomon, because the apple didn't fall very didn't fall very far from the tree, did it? The same heart of David now, Solomon, his son, has the same wonderful heart um, of just uh, desiring God's will to be done. But verse 18, But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth, Solomon says? Behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Well, it's going to happen. Ezekiel tells us that. In the millennial reign, Jesus will indeed dwell with men on earth after his second coming and beyond. And Ezekiel tells us of this. In Ezekiel 37, verse 21, Then say to them, God says to Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, where they have gone, and will gather them from every side. Now remember, when he says this, the children of Israel are already in captivity. They're in Babylon as Ezekiel is writing this. So that they are in captivity. And God says, I will gather the children of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. What? David died a few hundred years prior to this. So what does that mean? David is going to be resurrected, right? We know that the Jews, the faithful Jews, are going to be resurrected at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. It tells us that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And also, I think in Isaiah 26, verse 19, I think I got that. But notice, David, my servant, he shall be king over them. Of course, Jesus will be the king over him. And they shall have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in the judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they their children, their children's children, forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Now, let's think about that for a second. He's going to be a prince. A prince is somebody who is subordinate to a king, right? So who is the king in the millennial reign? Jesus. And who is his prince? David. It says it right here. He is going to be like a co-regent kind of thing. And God's going to bring him back to fulfill those promises that he made to Israel long ago, this Davidic covenant. And he's going to, it's going to be a reminder to everybody that what God has said is true. Again, because he cannot go back on his promises. And he says, And I will, moreover, moreover, I'll make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. It's not happening right now, is it? It. But it's going to happen. I will I'll, I'll set my my tabernacle with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the nation—excuse uh, me—I can't even speak. I'm getting so excited. The nations also will know that I, Jehovah, sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Wow! That is just man. Just kick me. Wow. I mean, that is profound. He's not talking about anything current. He's talking about then. Behold, the heaven of heavens cannot you. how much less this temple which I have built. And yet Solomon knew the vastness and the greatness of Almighty God, and ultimately nothing could contain God. What does it tell us in Isaiah 40, verse 12? It says, Speaking of God who has measured who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand measured heaven with the span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And see, isn't that wonderful that almighty God, he's so incredibly powerful. There's no one like him, and yet he's so gentle. And isn't he gentle with you? Do you remember the time? I remember when I got saved and and the mess that I was in. I remember how heartbroken I was and how filled with uh, guilt and uh, everything. I just felt like nothing. I felt like I was just like, my life is, I don't even know what I'm doing. And yet in that, you know, what's that verse? You know, a bruised reed he shall not break, and a, a smoking flax he won't quench it. He won't stuff it out. But what does he do? He helps it. And all this power, he could just say, I'm done with you, and just blow me away, and I would never see, I would cease to exist forever. But God, in his wonderful great power and his love, as great as his power is, as great as his gentleness. See, he's, he's not struck, he's not limited by, you know, you know, some people, you know people like this, you know, they're really big bodybuilders and everything they touch, they break because they're so big. You know, they walk into a room and they're like a bull in a china shop. Everything, you know, they turn and they knock over a display, you know, and this guy, you know, Lou Ferrigno kind of guy, you know, and he's just this big, you know, Goliath looking creature full of steroids and horse hormones. But God is not like that. God can take everything and lift it up and go. And he can also take and he can fix the eye of an ant and go, gotcha, you're all set. Gentle. He can just do the gentle thing in your heart. He can touch you in such a simple, still way and it just melts you. It just melts you. And when God touches you, he melts you, doesn't he? Have you experienced God melting you? I love it when he does, because I don't want to leave that place. When he melts me, let him melt you. Let him take you apart and assemble you, because believe me, if he's going to take you apart, it's only because he's got something much greater for you. He totally changed my world, my whole goal of life. I wanted to be a concert classical guitarist. I was on my way, and God intervened, and boy, whoosh, He changed everything on a dime, and I am so glad he did. Your will be done, God, because you know what? I would have been miserable by now, and now I'm happier than I've ever been. I'm the most blessed man, and I would have been miserable doing what I was going to do. And he's like, you know, i got a better plan for your life, Rob. Are you willing to submit to it? I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. Are you ready for it? And I'm like, God, I I don't even know what I'm missing. (laughs) You do it. And he's doing it, and he's doing it in you too. Let him, let him have all of you. Don't give him just pieces. Don't compartmentalize your life. Give him the whole enchilada. Give him everything. Just say, Lord, here here am I. Here's everything. Take all the dark rooms in my heart that I've been hiding the keys from. I'm gonna hand you them over right now and I ask you to go inside and illuminate them and don't be afraid. Let him examine you. like Like David says, Lord, search my heart. Seek me, Lord, search me, and see if there's any wicked way in in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. What a great and wonderful God we serve, Amen. amen? Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you have said you had put your name there. That you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place and and may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive, notice this, and although you know not all prayer is confession of sin. It appears that Solomon had this in mind, and it's important for us to confess our sins, isn't it? Isn't that what it tells us in First John chapter 1, verse 8? It says, if we confess our sin... Or if we say that we have no sin, in other words, if we say that we don't even have a sin nature, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, plural, our everyday sins, He, God, Jesus Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I like that. So all I got to do daily is just confess those sins. And he is faithful to forgive me. And, and he'll never look upon them again. And don't you try to look at those things again when God has forgiven you? Because you know what? In the church, so many people fail in this area. They, they, they don't believe that God can forgive you of your sin. You still want to pay for your own sin that you did a long time ago. And God's like, child, why are you, why are you wrecking yourself and making yourself feel guilty? Why are you carrying the weight of all of the sin and guilt when I told you I would forgive you? Just leave it with me, and I will take it, and my blood will cleanse it. And what my blood cleanses, I will never look upon again, and I will never recall it. It'll never come up before me ever again. That is something. But do we believe it? Because the, 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 the measure that you believe that truth is the measure that you are going to be set free and you're going to be victorious in your Christian walk and you're going to have a wonderful time because there's nothing more glorious than when God can forgive you of a sin and you can walk away from confession and you know that you'll never, ever hear that again from him. The devil will bring it up, and your own heart will say, oh, I, can't, I still can't forget what I did, and I feel so bad. And God's like, hey, we already touched that. We've already, I've already paid the price for that. Now get up and walk, and put that smile back on your face, because i got a plan. And you keep going. You keep going. Don't you be looking back. You look back, you're going to drown. You look forward in Christ. And that's the thing we got to do, folks. So notice in verse 22, If anyone sins uh, against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. We don't have time to go there, but I would encourage you to look at 1 Kings chapter 2 because Joab uh, did this very thing. He went in before the altar and... and, uh, David told Solomon before he died, he says, You better deal with Joab. That was, his, that was his nephew, by the way. So, this is his uncle or his great uncle or whatever it is. And that man was a bloodthirsty man. He did some really horrible things. And he said, He needs to die for his sin. <laughs> and so he did, except Joab thought he would receive mercy by going in and grabbing the horns of the altar. And Benaniah was sent to take care of business. And then in verse 24, or if your people... Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple. Then hear from heaven Lord and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave them and their fathers. And this is certainly uh, something that happened in the lives of Judah when they were in captivity in Babylon but we're going to look at this a little bit more later in the chapter because we've got to get moving here. Uh, so verse 26, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because we Have sinned against you. When when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. And this occurred. This very same thing occurred. Um, in, in, in the future from when uh, Solomon was praying this. It occurred actually in um, uh, 1 Kings 17 and 18 when uh, Elijah and Ahab and the squaring off of the prophets of Baal. And, and it wasn't until after uh, God, or Elijah had killed those 450 prophets that God had sent rain on the land because there had been a drought for three years prior to this because of the sin of the people. They were worshiping Baal. And so Elijah kills these 400 prophets uh, on Mount Carmel. We read about that. And I would encourage you just to go to 1 Kings 17 and 18 and read that. Um, And we're running out of time here. So let's go to verse 28. So then, when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts and grasshoppers, then their enemies, when their enemies, excuse me, besiege them in the land of their cities. Whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, then, Lord, hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all of his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. And it does, you know. Psalm one thirty nine is one of my favorite psalms because it just speaks of God's omnipotence, His all power, and His, and his um, omniscience that He knows everything. You know, O Lord, You search me and know me; You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off, and You comprehend my path and my lying down. And there is not a word on my tongue, for be, but behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You know, these kind of things are just amazing. And then verse 31, that, you may, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to their fathers. And you know, to walk in, the, in God's ways is really an important thing. In Jeremiah 6, verse 16, there's a really wonderful verse. I'd encourage you to, to know it, to read it. And the Lord is speaking to Jeremiah and to the children of Israel. And remember, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem when Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians. Ezekiel went to Babylon. Jeremiah stayed in Jerusalem. So while he's in there, the Lord says to him, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. See, we don't need new things. We don't need to invent some new thing to grow the church. No, you don't grow the church by fads and books and, and, and trying to you know, have a hot worship team with the lights and, you know, and have video games for the kids and cotton candy for the parishioners. No, you don't do that. You, you stand in the old paths, you teach them the word of God and that's what we've been doing here. That's what, we, what we've been doing for 30 years. Pastor Jeff had been, has started the whole thing. It's what Calvary Chapel does. We don't have a pep rally. Nothing wrong with a pep rally. I mean, we could use some excitement. But the main thing is, is that we are fed on the word of God and that our focus is on the word of God. We get into the word of God. Verse 32, moreover, concerning a foreigner. And guess what? That's you and I. It's interesting. These two verses, verse 32 and 33, is speaking about Gentiles. Is anybody here Jewish tonight? None of us. We're all Gentiles. This is for us. Listen. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and they pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Do you see that? So is God Almighty just the God of the Jews? Or is he the God of all creation, of all nations? And here it is. It's right here. That all may know you, not just the Jews. In Luke, it tells us that. <laughs> you know, um, the angel speaking to the shepherds out in the field in Luke chapter 2. Behold, I bring good tidings of great joy, which will be for to all people. Not just to the Jews, but to all people. And then... Uh, Um, simeon as he was holding jesus he says now lord you are letting your servant depart in peace after he held jesus in his arms according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples all peoples he's the god of all not just the god of the Jews." Verse 34, back in our text, When your people go out to battle against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward the city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayers and their supplications and maintain their cause. Verse 36 and verse 39, And when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive, and they repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned. We have done wrong and have committed wickedness. And then, and when they turn, excuse me, to you with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been carried captive and they pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and toward the temple which I have built for your name. Then Lord, hear from heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their supplications and maintain their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you. And isn't that what Daniel did? I would encourage you at this moment in your in your Bible in this next verse, or or, you know, write in Daniel six verse one through seventeen. Because remember, Daniel, um, that's exactly what he did. He was a young man when he came into Babylon, and now he's an older man. And now the 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 men and and God had risen him to such a great power because his heart was right. And he followed God. And he always did this. He always opened up his windows, probably in some spire in the kingdom. He opened up his window, windows and he knelt down and he, he prayed toward Jerusalem. He did exactly what the scripture just told us while he was in captivity. And that's the only thing his enemies could find against him. And you read Daniel 6 and you'll find out how the story goes. And it's not just a story, forgive me. It's the event that occurred. Because that's real history that happened. And they tried to... And that's where Dave, or excuse me, Daniel ended up in the lion's den because of his faithfulness to God. And did God allow the lions to tear him to pieces? Nope. I bet the lions were really perplexed. Because there is Daniel sitting there, and they're, they're looking at him, and they're licking their chops, and they're, and they're, and they're looking at each other. The lions are going... Why aren't we tearing into this guy? I don't know. Do you feel something inside? I just don't feel it. I, I just—it's not happening. I don't—I don't. I don't under, I'm getting so confused. I don't know who I am anymore. Who am I? And I'm not a lion anymore. What am I? Am I a dog? Maybe the lions were thinking they're changing their—I won't go there. Their pronouns—they're not. They were confused. They should be tearing into him, and yet God restrained them from tearing into Daniel. An amazing thing. But you read that yourselves. What an amazing thing. Now, my God, notice verse 48. Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in goodness. We'll end with this really quickly. In Romans 13, there's a wonderful um, passage here. It begins in verse 11. And just to build upon this idea of being clothed with salvation. And see, that's what you and I are. We're clothed with salvation. Isn't that a wonderful thought? You know, God clothes you with something that you couldn't earn, you couldn't uh, work your way into it. It's something He gave to you because of His death and resurrection. And as a child of God, it's your inheritance. It's part of what he has given to us. And Paul, writing to the Romans in uh, chapter 13, beginning in verse 11, he says, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us, notice, cast off the works of darkness and let us do what? Let us put on the armor of light. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but here, verse 14, but put on Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Isn't that awesome? He clothes you with salvation. He gives you a robe of righteousness that he alone purchased and gave to you. It's an armor of it's, it's an armor of light. It's literally putting on Christ Jesus. And he has clothed you. And then he finishes the, this dedication. Oh, Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. And that word anointed in the Hebrew means Messiah. So God, you know, or excuse me, uh, Solomon already understands that the Messiah is coming. And all of this is like a foreshadowing, this kingdom is foreshadowing another kingdom coming in the future. Oh Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed or your Messiah. Remember the mercies of your servant, David. Amazing. Amazing. I took some time and I went through this um, and you can... I can send this to you if you want. Just really quickly, I, I began to consider, you know, the model prayer of Jesus in Matthew six, when Jesus um, gave to his disciples this model prayer. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, etc. And I began to read that model prayer, and I began to look at Solomon's prayer of dedication, and I found a lot of similarities. And I don't, I don't believe it's forced. Um, some of one of these, I think, probably was a little bit forced, but the other ones fall right into place. And and what it brought me to is uh, th- this this spontaneous, heartfelt prayer that Solomon is praying. The elements of that prayer are in this model prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. Some of those same elements are there, and that can help us too. You know, maybe you're struggling in prayer and maybe you're, um, take that model prayer in Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse, uh, was it nine, uh, nine through 13 and look through that and and take that as a model And, and it'll help you organize your prayer so that you're not so scattered because if you're like me, I begin to pray and pretty soon I'm off and I forgot where I went and I'm trying to get back and I haven't had my coffee yet. I need to take another sip of coffee and, uh, does anybody feel like that in the morning sometimes? Maybe your head is starting racing for the day and you're, you're all scattered. Sometimes you just need to think about things. Start with praise. Hallowed be your name. Just start with praise. Just thank him. And then go to the next thing. You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lord, your will be done today. Lord, I got a lot of things going on today. And Lord, I want your will to be done. I don't want mine to be done. Would you help me with this? That Deliver us from, you know, uh, you know, forgive us our sins or our debts. It literally means sins or debts, same thing. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lord, help me to forgive that woman at the, at the workplace who's driving me crazy. Forgive me for the same sin because I see it in her and I hate it in her, but I like it in me. You know, forgive me and deliver me from the evil one. Deliver me from things I can't see. Help me to understand the spiritual battle that I can't understand. I can't see it, but I know, it's, I know it's raging all around me. And sometimes you see the physical ramifications of it. You're seeing it in Israel right now. Do you think that's a spiritual battle that's just broken out at the seams into the physical? You better believe it. Everything that we see that goes amok and any violence that gets meted out in the physical, it first began in the spiritual. Do you understand that? And there comes a point, because you know it. You know it of your own self and your own heart. When there's something in you that just, you've got to have it, you've got to do it, pretty soon you think about it, you, you, you think about it too long, and it's going to result in an action. And pretty soon you're not just going to be thinking about it, it's going to consume you, and then you're going to actually do it. It started off as something spiritual, and now it has become something physical. Do you think those boys, those two young men in Columbine back in 1999, when they went in and shot up to high school, do you think that that started just... For no reason? No, there was a spiritual element of that. It was the very foundation of what they were doing. And then it became physical. And so we need to take heed to ourselves, don't we? We need to think pure things and remove things that are just warring against us and get rid of the things that are just warring with your members and with your flesh. You don't need any help, trust me. I don't need any help to be nasty. I need everything that God has to make me be like Him. And he is doing it. And I want him to do it because I don't want to be ugly and nasty. I want to be like Christ. Do you want to be like Jesus? If you do, stand with me and let's pray. And I believe we all do. Lord, we just come before you tonight and we want to thank you for, um, Lord, just your word. And we ask that you cover us tonight, Lord. And that you would be victorious in our life and that we would allow you to be victorious in our life, that we wouldn't keep back the keys from you. We would hand over everything to you, Lord. We wouldn't hold back. Lord, set us free from our flesh, from our own ideas, from our background, from our history, from our past. Lord, set us free and just deliver us from all the things that have kept us chained up to this very moment. Lord, you've died for so much more than what we are currently experiencing. Would you set us free tonight, God? And set us free tomorrow. And continue to set us free, Lord. And ultimately, we will be set free. And we are set free. And we ask it in your precious name. In Jesus' name, amen.